Next week, I'm doing the uh, next chapter, and then after that, Steve Ellicott, who's not here tonight, will be continuing, and then I'll be doing a few more, and then Steve will do the one right at the end, the penultimate, not the penultimate, but the final one. I'll do the penultimate one, if that makes sense. So we're going through the book of Galatians, and let me quickly fill you in, if you weren't here last week, about the situation to which Paul writes. So Paul was an apostle sent by God, and he was sent to the churches in a particular part of the Roman Empire called Galatia. Paul went there, he preached the gospel, people were saved. He started churches, he set them on the right path, he gave them the true gospel of Jesus Christ, he taught them, he worked with them, and then, as he always did, he went on his way to preach to other places where the gospel was not yet known. But in Paul's absence, he heard a troubling report about some people that had come in and preached a perverted version of the gospel. And what they were basically saying was that you had to be circumcised and obey lots of Jewish customs and traditions which came from the ceremonial law that was given to the Jewish people to mark them out as the holy people of God. So these these Christians had accepted the word of God. They believed in Jesus Christ. They believed that they were saved through faith by grace or by grace through faith. Both are true. And yet these men had come in. They'd wheedled their way into the church with all their corruption, their clever words, their pious living, and they came in and said, well, actually, that's not enough. You need to be circumcised. You need to obey special days, and you need to kind of observe other kind of food laws and all these kinds of things. Basically, you need to become Jewish before you can become true, genuine Christians. Paul was, to say the least, he was concerned about this. He was troubled, he was angry, And last week we looked at what he said to these people. He said, if anyone preaches a different gospel, let him be cursed, let him be anathema. Paul was that zealous for the true gospel of Jesus Christ. He knew this was a works-based gospel. Something was taking away from the grace of God and saying you have to earn and contribute towards your salvation. And Paul was having none of it. This week we read something slightly different. We read Paul talking about his experiences before he became a Christian and an apostle and after he became a Christian and an apostle. And he goes into lots of detail. You might be sitting here tonight thinking, why on earth do we need to know about all this? Why do we need to have a kind of exhaustive biographical account of Paul's conversion and what he did afterwards, where he went and the people that he spoke to? What relevance does this have to us? Well, let me just set the context a little bit. So Paul, these opponents, these men who came in, let's call them the circumcision group, who were polluting the church for their false teaching. They were saying that Paul was a fake, that he wasn't a real apostle. So we all know about the 12 apostles in Jerusalem. We know who they are. They were commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. They saw him. They lived with him for three years. They heard his teaching. But who is this Paul? Is he a fake? So do you remember last week I talked about this this idea of being a fake policeman or a fake doctor, dressing up and being an imposter, pretending to be something you're not, something you're not qualified to do, something you're not commissioned to do. People were saying this about Paul. They were saying, this Paul, he's just an imposter, a self-appointed apostle. You know what? This Paul is so concerned about getting converts, he's willing to kind of compromise the gospel, the demands of the law, to make it easy for everyone to be saved. So actually, you do need to be circumcised to be a Christian. And Paul is leading you down the garden path by saying, no, you don't. It's actually very easy. You know, you, know, you just have to believe in Jesus Christ. Well, they're saying, that's, that's not a true gospel. You need to actually do these works as well. Listen to us. We know what's best for you. 
This Paul, you know, we don't even know where he's come from. He's picked up this kind of second-hand gospel. He's mangled it. He's, he teaches easy believism. We have the true gospel. So they kind of set up this conflict for the Galatian Christians. Young Christians, a bit naive, not very educated, and not very well-versed in scripture. And Paul sets up, these, these Judaizers, this circumcision group, set up this kind of conflict between the two. Paul, with his easy believism gospel, which is salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, or their version of the gospel, which is no good news at all, according to Paul, which is a matter of works and obeying the law. So you can imagine the sort of confusion and distress which was caused in these churches. These young Christians had no idea whom to believe. Should they listen to Paul, the, the man who taught them the gospel and had worked so hard with them and had loved them? Or should they listen to these new people coming in with this very plausible message, very subtle, very dangerous, still believing in Jesus Christ and yet twisting it by adding some element which was not in Paul's gospel? Who should they believe? And it appears that some of them, if they hadn't already been circumcised, they were considering having it. And you can imagine that's probably not a very, very pleasant prospect. But they wanted to sincerely please the Lord. They wanted to be right with the Lord. They'd enjoyed so much grace and joy, knowing their sins were forgiven by faith in Jesus Christ. And yet suddenly these people had come and put a spanner in the works. They were saying, actually, you thought you were saved, but you were wrong. Paul's hoodwinked you, and you need to go through these rituals and these law-keeping demands. Paul was not happy about this. Paul wanted to nip this in the bud. He wanted to put a stop to this. But, you know, Paul could have just said, well, don't listen to them, listen to me. They had a choice, a dilemma. Who do, we, who do we believe, Paul or these circumcision people? So how does Paul deal with this? Well, this week we're going to look at how he deals with it. He assembles an enormous amount of plausible, credible evidence to show that he is an apostle, a true apostle, no less than the 12, which these other men idolized and put on a pedestal. He said, I am a true apostle. I'm sent by God. I've been given a message. And this message is the true gospel that Christ gave me for his church and for the Gentiles. And this is why you should believe me. And he, he talks about his testimony. He talks about his credentials. So this is here today. We're reading about a crucial battle for hearts and minds of genuine Christian people who have been led astray. And Paul knows there's still a chance to bring them back. It's not too late. He's contending for these people. And how we also, we should contend for people who are going astray. It's not too late. We can pray for them. We can reach out. We can bring the word of God. And we can, we can hope and pray the Lord will bring them back to the true gospel. We should contend for people as well. So Paul takes great pains to show that he was called by Christ and given this gospel. Now, if you remember last week, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says this. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. So, in a sense, this chapter, in this chapter, in this, this section we're reading today, Paul is elaborating on this verse we read last week. Now, I want you to look at verse 11. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preach to you is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation. From Jesus Christ. This is the first piece of evidence that Paul gives the Galatian churches about his apostleship and about his calling. 
Paul says very clearly, I did not pick up this message by tradition. I did not pick up this message from the other apostles. I did not pick up this message from any other man or from any other person. And I'm certainly not self-appointed. No, he says, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. We know what happened, don't we? When Paul was on that Damascus road, the Lord revealed himself. He completely turned around Paul's life. Paul was going in one direction, literally and metaphorically, and the Lord turned him around. Actually, he went in the same direction. He went to Damascus, but he went as a changed man, a gospel man, an apostle, a preacher of the Lord Jesus Christ, not a persecutor of the church. And Paul, in this chapter, in this section, he's pointing out evidence to show that he had no contact with the Jerusalem apostles before this time. And yet he appears out of nowhere and he has a message, a gospel, which is exactly the same as the Jerusalem apostles had and were preaching. Paul says, this did not come from any man. I received this by revelation. Now, either Paul is lying. In fact, perhaps, perhaps he did have some kind of encounter with a man who told him the gospel. Either that, or he's had a very, very profound experience of God. That's the first piece of evidence. Where on earth did Paul's gospel come from? If he had no contact with the other apostles or Christians in general, the only contact he had with Christians was persecuting them, hounding them from place to place. Where on earth did this gospel come from? That's the first thing that he appeals to. Now, many people in the world claim that they've heard from God and they've been commissioned by God. You don't have to look far to find deluded people who believe that God has given them a special commission and a special message to preach to people. How do we know Paul is not just another kind of deluded maniac who's just kind of believes he's heard from God, you know, he's had some kind of nightmare or some kind of vision which comes from somewhere else? Well, look at verse 13. You've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So I want you to consider this. If Paul had been some kind of fantasist, some kind of deluded person who believed that he had some kind of message from God, why on earth would he have changed so rapidly and turned his life around? Well, he didn't turn his life around. God turned his life around. Paul was the most unlikely person you could imagine to be a Christian. He was a tough nut. He was you know, a tough nut to crack. He was zealous, absolutely zealous, fanatical for the laws and traditions of the Jewish people. And if anybody had stood up for the Jewish traditions, it would have been Paul. He was advancing in his own religion beyond many of his contemporaries. He was top of the class in the rabbinical school. He had a lot of credentials to prove that he was a good and faithful Jew. You know what? It wasn't just that. He was actually persecuting the church of Christ, as I just just mentioned. You know, he had legalistic righteousness before God. If anybody could have boasted in their own righteousness, it would have been Paul. You know what? Paul was going around. He so hated the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, he actually persecuted Christians and cursed those who preached against the traditions and cursed those who preached grace and faith and salvation by faith. So Paul wasn't listening to Christians. He wasn't debating with Christians. He hadn't met somebody in the marketplace who said to him, Paul, have this tract and read it and go away and consider the claims of Christ. 
Paul wasn't interested. He wasn't a genuine seeker. He was absolutely 100% opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He regarded Jesus as a heretic and his disciples as fools. And he wanted to stamp out this new way of Christianity, faith in Jesus Christ. Question for you today. Could Paul have changed himself? Could Paul have found it in himself to kind of change his views about the Lord Jesus? Could Paul have found it in himself, the strength to discard all the Jewish traditions that he'd been brought up with, that he was so zealous for? I want to put it to you that Paul could not have saved himself from that mess. He was so enveloped in this fog of self-righteousness and legalism that nothing less than the mighty and profound work of Jesus Christ could have delivered him and made him into the man that he was subsequently. Paul gave up his comfortable and prestigious Jewish life to be a persecuted man who crossed the seas and the lands of the Roman Empire to preach the gospel and suffered so much. Paul was a man saved and chosen by the grace of God. I was talking to some people recently about why people are saved. And someone said to me, well, God sees what's in the heart of a person. He sees that person is basically a good person and means well, and he saves people like that. But Paul was not like that. Paul was a nasty piece of work. Although he was very religious, no, he was the least likely candidate to be a Christian and an apostle. And yet something radical and profound changed in that man's life and completely altered the course of his life and the history of the Christian church. Let me just point out this as well. Paul, being a very religious person, still needed the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes today you get this kind of trend, don't you, amongst Christians who kind of think that God is so generous that everyone will go to heaven and that God will look upon the good Muslim or the good Jew or the good Buddhist and see that really they mean well, really they're trying hard to please God and therefore God will accept them because he sees they mean well. Well, had that been the case, Paul could have been saved by his own works. God would have looked at him and said, well, Paul doesn't believe in Jesus, but he's actually you know, a good man. He's doing his best according to the light that he has, so he'll be saved. But no, that's not, not the case, is it? It has to be through faith in Jesus Christ that a man is saved, not by works. Now, look at verse 15. This is where things completely change in the opposite direction. Paul, this persecutor, this religious Jewish zealot, is changed. When God, verse 15, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man. I want you to note here that God is sovereign. God is in control. God's hand is on, on Paul's life from birth. God has destined him for a purpose. God allowed him to be this legalistic, zealous Jew perhaps to show the reality of his call, perhaps to show the contrast of his life before and his life after, to show that nothing else could change him but a mighty work of God. So Paul, from a, from a very, from, from basically from birth or before even he was born, God had his hand on Paul and says, I know that I'm going to use you for my kingdom. You are going to be my child. You're going to be my apostle. I'm going to use you to preach the gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles. This was not God's plan B. This was the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham that God made, that all the Gentiles, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. 
At that moment, when Paul met Jesus, he abandoned any trust in the Jewish law. All that went out of the window in an instant. All his learning, all his efforts, all his legalistic righteousness was swept aside just like that. Put his trust in the Lord Jesus. He realized that could not save him. It became worthless. And he saw Judaism as a kind of stagnant backwater. You know, once I was on the Norfolk Broads on holiday and we went on a rowing boat, my brothers and I went down this kind of little backwater that came off the main river. And after a while it got narrower and narrower, the trees crept in on either side and it just ended and petered out and it was kind of a muddy swamp. That's what Judaism became. That's what I think Judaism still is today. It's very, very tragic and sad when you see Jewish people, dear people, who are still zealous for the law and their traditions, thinking somehow they can be saved by that. It doesn't lead anywhere. Paul abandoned his Judaism. He already was referring to it as a different religion. You know, he talks about my previous way of life in Judaism. That was gone. That was finished. He, wasn't, he, wasn't, he was still ethnically Jewish, but he put that all aside because he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. I want you to notice also that Paul, when he met the Lord Jesus, he was completely transformed by that encounter. You meet professing Christians today who seem to be kind of stuck in a kind of halfway house, one foot in the church, one foot in the world, claiming to have had some kind of encounter with Jesus and yet still kind of stuck in that place. You think, we're all perhaps guilty of that, aren't we? Paul, when he met the Lord Jesus, was radically, profoundly, deeply, utterly changed by that encounter. And he was convinced this was true. How else would he have abandon all his prestigious life and his comfortable life in Judaism how else would he have gone preaching this gospel across the world Paul was in effect a no-hoper for the gospel I say that you know what I mean if you look to him you say there's no way that man is ever going to become a Christian and yet the Lord saved him just like that I want to encourage us to keep praying for people that we regard as no-hopers I'm sure each person here knows somebody who's a no-hoper somebody that's so hard so opposed to the things of God, so blinded by self-righteousness. Keep praying for people like that. We don't know whether God has plans to save them, but we should pray that God might do that. Wouldn't it be wonderful if I saw my Muslim friend, acquaintance, standing here one day, going down to that water, being baptized. God could do that just like that if he willed. What a trophy of grace that would be and how precious that would be. But you know what? There are no hard cases and no easy cases. Everyone's a hard case. There's not a single person who's not a Christian who is an easy case. There are people that God is working in, drawing to himself, and there are others who seem to be more hard, but you know what? God can save any of them by his miraculous power. Keep praying. Who knows what God will do? He takes somebody who's utterly opposed to, the, to his, his grace and his gospel, and he changes them, and he does such a wonderful work. You can say, this must be the power of God at work. No man could have done this. People would have looked at Paul and said, no man could have changed him. No plausible argument. No, you know, kind of, Paul, you, could have, you could have preached and preached and preached till the cows came home. Paul would not have been convinced unless the Lord had done a work in him. And the Lord did that work. Verse 16. To reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul would never have darkened the door of Gentile places. And he was born in Tarsus. There were plenty of Gentiles there. But he was such a zealous Jew. He believed they were the chosen people of God. And all else were 
goyim, what do they call it? Kind of you know, the people outside the covenant, excluded, untouchable people, people you didn't have anything to do with if you were a good Jew. And yet, God in his grace took that man, fanatical Jew, and sent him particularly with a calling to the Gentiles to preach the gospel in places where it had not been preached before. This was not God's plan B. God always intended to do this, right? From ancient times, from the Old Testament, God's plan was that the gospel would encompass the whole world and anyone who believed from every tongue, tribe, and nation. This is the piece of evidence of Paul. Do you really think that Paul could have changed himself? Do you think he could have been changed by some mere human argument, by someone persuading him to be, to be a false apostle? Verse 17. Let's read the end of 16. I did not consult any man, nor did I go to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I immediately went, sorry, I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. When Paul got saved, the first thing he did was not to go and take a trip to Jerusalem to kind of go and speak to the other apostles, the 12 and their friends, and find out things that he didn't know. What did he do? He went immediately into Arabia, so the area around Damascus, and he spent some time there. And we don't know exactly what Paul was doing in that time. Many people believe it was there that the Lord revealed himself to him and taught Paul. And Paul sat at the feet, as it were, of the Lord Jesus and he received the gospel and his message in that precious time in solitude in the wilderness. And already he was such a different person and he was growing in knowledge. Some people say that was to compensate for the three years that he didn't have with Jesus. So all the other, other apostles were with Jesus for those three years. They were learning every day from him, seeing his miracles. Paul didn't have that. But he had three years in the desert. And the Lord was teaching him during that time and how precious that was. But look at verse 18. After three years, he did go to Jerusalem. After three years, I went to Jerusalem to, to get acquainted with Peter and stay with him 15 days. Now, that, that gives it a kind of ring of, ring of authenticity, doesn't it? Because why, why mention this, Paul? Because his, his opponents were saying, well, Paul kind of got all his message from the other apostles and mangled it. And Paul's saying, well, actually, what he's trying to do here is prove, prove that he didn't have any contact with them, any meaningful contact. So when he went to Jerusalem, did he go because there was some kind of gap in his knowledge that needed to be filled in? Did he go because he was summoned there by the other apostles? The answer is no. Look at this again. So the reason he went there was to get acquainted with Peter and stay with him only 15 days, two weeks. It must have been a surprise for Peter to have this man who was an enemy of the church, a persecutor, now completely changed, preaching the gospel full of zeal and grace for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter went there for a brief, insignificant visit. He didn't go there to try and receive his gospel or his commission. He went there already an apostle. He went there with a message. He didn't go there to try and get their approval, the other apostles. He went there a fully-fledged, commissioned apostle of Jesus Christ. He went there just to get to know Peter, to spend some time with him. And we read from the book of Acts that when he was there, he was preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. It wasn't like he was sitting with Peter all the time, just conversing with him. He was actually out preaching. Never miss an opportunity, Paul. In Acts 9, we read this, the church was afraid of him. Wouldn't you be afraid if, if the arch enemy of Christians, the persecutor, came through the door of this church? We'd be a bit wary, wouldn't we? Perhaps he's come to kind of, you know, arrest us and take us away. 
Of course, in parts of the world today, it's a reality, isn't it? Christians being persecuted. You never know who's going to knock on the door. You know, Barnabas came and gave him the right hand of fellowship. Barnabas welcomed him and introduced him to the other apostles on that precious visit to Jerusalem. Verse 19, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. Paul's saying, I I didn't have a kind of conference with all the other apostles. We didn't all get together and have a kind of synod and talk about gospel, talk about the gospel, talk about the doctrines we preach. He went there just kind of on a casual visit to see the other apostles, to preach a bit, and then go on his way preaching elsewhere. Verse 20, so I assure you what I'm, pre- what, I'm, what I'm saying to you is no lie. It's a very strong term. Paul is saying, I'm, I promise you before God, in a sense, that what I'm saying to you is no lie. Paul is absolutely adamant and sure that what he's saying to them is true. I didn't receive this gospel from the other apostles. Christ gave it to me. Yes, I went to visit them, but that was as far as it went. Now, some details here. We don't need to kind of go over every single detail. Verse 21, later I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches that in Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. So after that, that brief visit to Jerusalem, Paul traveled around the area preaching the gospel. And the churches there didn't know him, but they welcomed him because he was preaching the same gospel that they had received. Paul's making the point, he wasn't preaching a radically different gospel. He was preaching the same gospel that the other apostles were preaching, the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 24, they praise God because of him. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. As I said before, wouldn't it be glorious if somebody who was a persecutor and a mocker of God became saved? And how we would thank God if we heard that they were actually preaching the gospel as a result now chapter 2 verse 1 14 years later I went again to Jerusalem so this is 14 years later after Paul's conversion and Paul has had a very fruitful ministry in those 14 years you can do a lot of things in 14 years and a lot can happen and Paul only after this, this length of time he goes back to Jerusalem once again Once again, was he called there because the other apostles were concerned about him and the gospel he preached? No, look here, it says he he went as a result of a revelation. This was a work of God. God called Paul back to Jerusalem. It's most probably, if you read in Acts chapter 11, Agabus, there was a prophet in the church who said there was going to be a famine. And Agabus predicted this and said, well, actually, you know, uh, this is going to affect the whole Roman world. And Paul and Barnabas, he picked up Barnabas by this time, a Jewish man, They went to Jerusalem from Antioch where they were to take famine relief to the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. We can't be absolutely certain that's probably the occasion we're talking about. Now look at verse 2. I set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles, but I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders, the fear that I was running or had run my, my race in vain. While Paul was in Jerusalem, bringing this famine relief properly, he went to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem and he set before them the gospel that he preached among the Gentiles. This is a very strange thing. He says, for fear that I was running or had run my my race in vain. 
Does that mean that Paul was having doubts about his gospel? Does that mean that he was having doubts about his calling? Saying, actually, you know, I've perhaps been wasting all these years by preaching something wrong. Well, that's not the case. The reason he was going to these apostles was for the purpose of accountability and unity. His enemies were following him everywhere. These Judaizers, these circumcision people, following him everywhere, undoing the good work that he was doing, or trying to undo it. They were undermining his authority. They were undermining his message. They were claiming he was inferior to the other apostles and that he was not a true apostle. And Paul was using this occasion to shut these people up and destroy their efforts by seeking unity with the other apostles. Now, in verse 3, not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. Where does this come from about Titus? Well, Titus, being a Greek, would have been a pagan and unclean to the Jewish people. And Paul brings Titus along with him as a test case. He wants to see whether the other apostles will accept Titus, just as he is, not circumcised, or they say, no, no, you cannot come and be part of us because you haven't been circumcised. You need to take this step. Would they take a bold stance on this issue? Or would they be soft to try and avoid controversy amongst the Jews? If they did not strongly endorse this, there could be a potential rift between the Jewish church and the Gentile church. What do I mean? Imagine if Paul had taken Titus to to see these these apostles and they, they had rejected him and said, no, you cannot come back until you're circumcised and you start to obey the law of Moses. Paul would not have accepted this because he believed strongly that he was called to preach salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone, by grace. So Paul would have gone on his way and there would have been a rift between the apostles, a disagreement between the 12 original apostles and Paul, the apostle called by God. So this was a very, very tense moment. Titus waiting at the door, you know, like I remember once I did some minor misdemeanor at school, was called to the head, head teacher's office and was waiting there to be hauled over the coals by the head teacher. You should actually give me a cup of tea and a biscuit and a little chat. But you know the, the nervousness, your heart's pumping. You can imagine Paul and Titus waiting outside the door to see Peter and the others. Something very significant is happening here in the Christian church. Something that had it gone wrong, had God not been in it, in his sovereign will, it could have created a terrible rift and misunderstanding and confusion. Had the other apostles rejected Titus to say, no, you need to be circumcised, mate, otherwise you can't come in. Had they done that, then that would have sent out a message to these Judaizers, these circumcision people, that the the apostles in Jerusalem are preaching a different message than the one that Paul is preaching. And that would have given, given them ammunition when Paul was preaching this free grace gospel they said, well, look, at Peter and the others didn't accept Titus. They must believe also that you must be circumcised. So can you see here what's going on? There's a very, very important test case. Paul wants to be sure. He wants to be convinced that the other apostles are going to welcome Titus and with him the message of grace to the Gentiles, not works. Praise God. Those godly men accepted Titus, did not compel him to be circumcised. And thus, in that one moment, they proved the unity of the church. They said there's one message that Paul preaches and one message that we preach, and it's the same message. The gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation by faith. Paul talks in verse 4 about some false brothers that infiltrated the church. 
He doesn't call them misguided people. He doesn't say, well, they're, they're genuine brothers, but misguided. He calls them false brothers, charlatans, deceivers. And Paul is absolutely black and white when it comes to these people. Paul doesn't mince his words, and he doesn't try to be overly charitable. I mean, he is charitable, but he's, he's very, very clear. These are false brothers. They've wheedled their way in, and they're causing trouble. They're undoing the good work of the gospel, and they are a nuisance, and they need to be stopped. And he says, we do not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. He doesn't falter. He doesn't hesitate. He calls a spade a spade and says, these men, these false brothers are deceiving. We're not going to give, give in to them for a moment for the sake of the truth of the gospel. Paul loves that phrase, truth of the gospel. So do I. Now, where are we? Verse 6. Just a little aside, I don't, I don't know whether I should mention this or not really, but sometimes this, this chapter can seem a bit strange the way Paul refers to the other apostles. So look in verse 6. As for those who seem to be important, whatever, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by, by external appearances. Those men added nothing to my message. But when Paul talks about these men, these, these, these men who appear to be important, he's not speaking disrespectfully, as it might appear, about the, oh, these men that seem to be important. You need to remember that the Judaists, the circumcision group, was trying to set Paul against the other apostles and say, these are the holy super apostles, these are the real apostles, these are the genuine ones. And they kind of almost idolize them, almost bow down and worship them. Paul, Paul is saying, I'm not the least bit inferior to these men. I'm just as, just as much an apostle as they are, and you need to respect me and esteem me just as you do these men. I'm no less than them. That was just a little, I could talk more about that, but it's a time is getting on, you know. Tempest fugitive. Those men added nothing to my message. So those, those godly men, those, those Jerusalem apostles did not say to Paul, actually, Paul, you know, you've got something wrong. You've missed something out. You haven't got a complete gospel message. You need to add circumcision to the mix, or you need to add some other element of the law. They didn't say anything. They added nothing at all to his message. And why not? Because there was nothing to add. Because his message was the same message as their message. Verse 7. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And I mentioned this earlier, didn't I? How, how ironic it was, in a gloriously kind of ironic way, that Paul, this religious Jew, was called with a particular calling to go and reach the lost Gentile people of the Roman Empire. Paul wasn't going to try to convert these men to a kind of form of Judaism. He was preaching the same gospel for Jews and Gentiles. The same gospel. Faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to labor too much on this, but in verse 8. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. It was very clear to everyone that God was working in both their ministries. But there was a division of labor, there was a sense of a different calling, one gospel, but one was called with a particular emphasis, a particular task to reach the Jews, and the other with a particular task to reach the Gentiles. But they believed the same gospel, they had absolute unity when it came to that. These apostles, the other apostles, saw the fruit in Paul's life. They saw the way that God had used him. They saw the evidence of a changed life, and they saw his zeal for Jesus Christ. It's kind of like, I suppose, a strategic division of labor. One would go that way, one would go that way, but they went with absolute unity. 
verse 9, James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, there you go again, that's the same kind of thing, those reputed to be pillars, he's talking about, you know, you know I was going to make a joke about pillars here, pillars something that you have on the end of your bed to sleep on, but that, that, <laughs> couldn't resist it. Those, those men who were reputed to be pillars, those ones who were kind of idolized by these Judaizers, those ones that they kind of set up as high and mighty, these are the proper apostles, we're going to listen to them. You know what, these men preach circumcision, well, actually no, they don't preach circumcision, you got that wrong. They preached grace. You know what they did? They gave Paul the right hand of fellowship, stuck out a hand and said, yes, brother, we affirm you, we affirm your ministry, we affirm your calling, we believe you're sent by Jesus Christ, we believe you're an apostle, and we believe you have the true gospel. They gave him the right hand of fellowship. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. So different callings, different places, different tasks, same gospel. All they ask is that they remembered the poor, which was the very reason they came to Jerusalem in the first place. I want you to remember, brothers and sisters, that when we have true biblical doctrine, we have the true gospel, the result is always compassion and concern, particularly for other brothers and sisters in Christ, but also for the wider world. Love and concern for the poor. Very practical outworking of this. Conclusions. People attack Paul they attacked his ministry, they attacked his person, they attacked his message, and people still do. It's almost certain that you'll hear somebody in your life who attacks Paul and says that Paul is not a genuine representative of Christianity. Now, you find churches today where people say Paul was wrong about certain issues. I've met Christians who said to me, I believe Paul was wrong about that issue, about the role of women or about homosexuality. I don't really know how these people kind of choose what they believe. Like, this, I believe this bit, I don't believe that bit. Well, that completely undermines anything that Paul says. How can you be sure that the great truths in the book of Romans, Paul was right about those things, if you don't believe he was inspired by Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, I mean. Some people, like my good old Muslim friend, will even say, well, they'll go further, they say, Paul invented Christianity. Jesus Christ preached this kind of very pure gospel about loving everybody else and Paul came and corrupted it with his teaching in Romans and all this kind of complication. It's very simple. You don't need all this kind of stuff about Paul, what Paul says. Just kind of believe in Jesus and do good and love everybody. Very popular in Brighton today. Like Jesus was some kind of guru. But you know what? I want you to know this, that Paul was used by Jesus. Now think about the New Testament. How much of the New Testament that Paul wrote? How many precious truths do we know because of the writings and the ministry of Paul? If we can't trust Paul, we cannot believe his testimony, we cannot believe his calling, how do we know we can trust any of that stuff? Perhaps these people are right. Perhaps the Muslim is right that Paul was just some kind of joker who came along and invented the religion of Christianity and corrupted the pure message of Christ. Now, there's this verse from John's Gospel. Jesus says this to his disciples, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. My question for us tonight is that do we believe that Paul and the other apostles who wrote so much of the New Testament, do we believe that they are, they were the fulfillment of these words of Jesus? That Jesus, he knew there was too much to teach the people, the disciples at that time and he, he planned in advance that more would be taught through these men which had his authority 100% stamped upon it. 
Paul has given us a shed load of evidence for his calling. It's very credible. Where did he get this message from? What would make a man like that turn around? I believe this is historically credible, historically true. We can trust Paul. We can look at this evidence and say, this, this makes sense. I believe this. Why, why was his message approved by the other apostles if he was barking up the wrong tree? What changed him so dramatically? What made him so fearless and effective? Men will not travel over land and sea, generally speaking, and be willing to risk their lives for something they know to be false. And Paul did that. I want you to be, to be confident in the Bible in this Reformation year. You believe every word of this book is from God. And what, Paul, what, what Jesus Christ was saying through Paul is just as important and just as authoritative as what Jesus himself said. You know, I, I know a man who has a red letter Bible. You know, this red letter, the words of Christ in red. I don't know where this idea comes from because every letter of this book is from Jesus Christ inspired by the Holy Spirit. What Paul wrote is just as authoritative as what Jesus said. That's what I believe. I mean, you could just look at the teachings of Jesus and prove the gospel just from them. But if you want, you want more, look at Paul, how he expounds these great truths and gives us much more that God has for us. Every word of this. This is the absolute standard of our behavior, our conduct, our life as Christians. We can trust Paul. Now, what, just in conclusion as well, to remind you, there's only one gospel. The same gospel for Jews and for Gentiles. People are saying, well, Paul has a different gospel for the Jews and a different gospel for the Gentiles. There's one gospel. For every race, language, culture, type of person, just one gospel. And that Jerusalem meeting sealed that forever. There's not a different gospel, a different way. There's one way, and that is Jesus Christ. The only way to rescue us from this present evil age. When somebody asks you or me, as that Philippian jailer did, what shall I do to be saved? And may we, brothers and sisters, hear that cry more and more often. People coming here with desperation. The Lord has done a work, awakened in them something spiritual, awakened in them a concern about their soul and their eternal destiny. They say, what must I do to be saved? What did Paul say that time to the Philippian jailer? He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Don't point them to works. Don't point them to anything else, but point them to the Lord Jesus Christ and believe. So tell them to believe. And if they believe and if the Holy Spirit is working, they will be saved. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So simple, so profound. That's what Paul preached. That's what Peter preached. That's what the Bible says. This is Paul's gospel. His driving passion. This is the message of the church. This is what we this is what drives us and powers us. This is where we go and preach person under heaven by the grace of God. Jesus Christ, believe on him and you will be saved. Focusing on that cross, that atoning sacrifice where our salvation was won for us. How subtle, how insidious, how dangerous it is to kind of add works and human effort to that. It's purely of grace. And just as Paul was called by God, not one of us chose to save ourselves. We couldn't have done that. It was a work of divine sovereign grace that made us new creations, that gave us the ability to believe, that opened our eyes. Quote from Luther, Martin Luther, just to finish. Let this be the conclusion of altogether, that we will allow our possessions to be taken away, our name, our life, 
and all that we have. But the gospel, our faith, Jesus Christ, we will never allow to be taken from us. Amen. Next week we'll pick up and we'll see what happens when Peter compromised on the truth of the gospel and how Paul dealt with that.